2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Aspen Brown, a host of the channel and currently an MA candidate at the University of Wyoming, studying cultural history with a focus on environment, science, and knowledge. Today, we'll be talking to Elizabeth Irvin Blankenheim about her new book, Song of the Earth. Understanding Geology and Why It Matters, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Elizabeth Irvin Blankenheim, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Aspen. I really appreciate it.
2: Well, and thank you for coming on today. Um, I'm really excited to to talk about your book, but, we've, but before we dive into it, um, would you begin um, by telling us a bit about yourself and your background?
1: Oh, I'd, I'd love to. Um, I am a geology instructor at Front Range Community College in Fort Collins, so not far from University of Wyoming. And um, before that, I was a geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey for many years and um, had a career doing hydrology and groundwater studies in New Jersey and Nevada um, at Yucca Mountain. Uh, But my interest in science was sparked by my sixth grade science teacher, uh, Mrs. Heilman, in general science. But I'll just never forget the, uh, I I don't know, she made it so relevant and interesting. And I've always had a passion for um, science in general and geology specifically. So uh, I started, well, I went to my undergraduate Um, college, Dickinson College in Pennsylvania, and I actually majored in anthropology, but um, I was really interested in archaeology and how geology would influence archaeological sites. So I started to study geology and decided to take, we had a program where you could go for a whole year and get a second major, and that's what I decided to do. And I continued on doing some geoarchaeology for a while. But then I started working for the federal government at the EPA in Philadelphia, Environmental Protection Agency. And they said, well, it's really better to have not, not to do two different careers in terms of the geoarchaeology. And I was looking into hydrology at that time. So I carried on and I decided to focus on geology and hydrology, the study of water, and uh, soon transferred to the U.S. Geological Survey and ultimately ended up here in well in Denver, in Colorado, working on the Yucca Mountain project and then um, doing fracture network studies and a lot of groundwater modeling and um, writing reports, many, many reports. And then um, I did have I've retired a bit early, but I went on to start my teaching kind of career, I guess you could say. And um, I decided before I did that, I did get my licensure in. I am a professional geologist, and what that entails is sitting for an exam, a pretty intensive exam that I studied for for a year. I took the exam and passed, and the people who had offered the review course asked me to come teach with them. So I did that for twelve years, and in the in the interim, I also I applied to Front Range Community College, and we had moved to Colorado at this time. Um, we had been back in Pennsylvania for a while, and um, they I started as an uh, part-time professor in geology. And um, I don't know, my students just inspired me to write this book. So it was uh, quite a process. So I hope that answers your question.
2: Yes. And it, and it leads into the the next question I have, which, you know, what, since, since you, you're kind of inspired by your students um, writing this book, what really like drove you to write the write it in the way you did?
1: Well, my students just, they have such enthusiasm for geology, even though many are non-majors, and this is probably one of their only science classes, but they, especially for environmental geology, which is the first course I taught at Front Range, um, and even then physical geology, the students were so interested in how human life and humans intersect with geology and all the aspects of you know how we study water and rocks and minerals and the age of the earth and and it really touches on every aspect of our lives we just don't often realize it so they wanted to know more after my classes and i thought well Um, Oh, and to back up a step, I had a friend and colleague who um, said to me one day, you should write a book. And I told her, what book? I was, I never thought of writing a book. And so those two things, my students and then this friend and colleague saying that I should write a book um, ended up in me starting to work on Song of the Earth.
2: And... You know what, you set me up just perfectly for for a next question I have. And, and can we explore the title a little bit? Because it's Song of the Earth, understanding why geology or understanding geology and why it matters. So so the the, the, the subtitle is, I think you've answered, but what does the uh, what, what does the Song of the Earth mean to you? And, and why was that the the title that you went with?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Well, I believe the Earth has its own agency, if you will. And um, even, even there is a v- vibration that the Earth puts out, I forget the kilohertz, but there is sort of this vibration, a planetary vibration that the Earth emits. Um, but I just thought that the Earth has, in a sense, its own voice and it speaks to us through the lens of geology. So the earth has its own processes and um, things that occur, whether they be slow and steady processes that like ended up with all the rocks of the Grand Canyon or or more catastrophic uh, processes, such as when the asteroid hit the earth 66 million years ago, ending the Mesozoic and all of the the lives of the non-avian dinosaurs at the end of the Cretaceous. So I just think we live in a geologic world and we are actually geologic beings. And it, it just seemed to me that to give the earth that voice and how do we know what we know was um, the reason I picked the title.
2: That's really beautiful, and uh, the 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 content of your book and and your your thought process within within something like the, like the title, I think, really shows your your transdisciplinary talents and all of all of your experience that you've that you've gathered from from sixth, sixth grade on. So that's that's really that's really really neat, um, and and kind of building in the because hu- a lot of times for me when we speak about geology the human seems to be left out um so i really thought it was interesting that um that the human you know you, you you're you're building the human into this narrative in such a such a cool way and and the first two two chapters are also about the 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 roots of geology as a as a scientific practice um why did you start why did you start there
1: well, that is sort of what we call the nature of science, and how do we know what we know? And in geology, it traces back—at least the Western scientific view of geology—traces back to the you know beginning of the 16th century, back to Steno and um, all the discoveries. And I just have to say, as an aside, there are other ways of knowing, um, and there's many indigenous methodologies concerning geology that are fascinating that I wasn't able to touch on in this book, but I I hope down the road to do that. But this was from a Western scientific view and um, I thought the stories, the narrative approach would be kind of be a way to engage my readers, to have them understand that these early geologists were people and they had their struggles and they had their moments of not knowing or just it's such there's so many incredible stories that are make up the the sum total of what we've learned
2: yeah and that's that's really it, that the 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 process of of exploring comes across really well in those chapters and and in your intro you do acknowledge that this is one segment of, um, of a knowledge base coming from, from this enlightenment perspective. So, um, I, I appreciate that you, that you do acknowledge that there are other viewpoints and other, other wisdoms out there that we can, uh, we can engage with. And, um, this one specific discipline of geology is not, not the only, only thing we can consider. Um, the idea of narrative is really interesting though, because, as as a historian we we talk a lot about grand narrative and and how a lot of these thinkers in the 18th and 19th century not only were looking at the past but they were looking at the future and trying to trying to project what um what the world would be like but now we're sitting at a at a a, a kind of a a point where you ask um, in your third chapter, "Are we living at the end of time?" And so, would you would you talk about because your third and fourth chapters are about about time? Um, would you talk a little bit about the importance of geologic time and and why that question, "Are we living at the end of time?" is is important?
1: Oh well, thank you. Well, geologic time is such a basic, fundamental tenet in geology that it everything else is pretty much wrapped around it and um it's it's the focus of my my book, and also I didn't get to say before, but i have this book has inspired me to do even more so i'm in a i am in my doctoral program almost about to graduate um hopefully oh, wow.
2: congratulations
1: thank you i'm working, working on my dissertation as we speak and today rather and um I'm almost there. it's been a journey too. But, um my topic is geologic time, as inspired by the book. so, if we think of the Earth's biography and the long four point six billion years of earth's history it's it's almost unfathomable in, in regard to like a human life, the length of a human life and how do we how do we help people understand that and it's just it's almost inconceivable because of our own our own time frame. So um, I try to do that, to bring that about by um, showing like the spiral of geologic time, which is one of the color illustrations, and then going through the biography of the earth. And then again, how did we figure out all the, just talking about the time scale itself of the earth. Um, it, I mean, it's it's just so amazing how we uncovered it. And it's been The analogy I like to use is think of a huge book, you know, maybe a thousand page long and you take it and this is a travesty in a sense, but you rip it apart and you scatter the pages around and somehow they get burnt in a forest fire and then doused with water and and then buried in soil. <laughs> and then someone comes along years later and tries to find these pieces of the book. And the book is the story of the earth, the biography. And then they try to put it back together. That's what geologists and stratigraphers, those who study strata and sediments and the layering of the earth have tried to do. And it's, it is an incomplete record, but um, we've I think it's amazing that they've been able, we've been able to figure this out since the late 1500s to today. So that was a big part of it. And then with the advent and advance of radioisotopes and the studies in science, we can actually pin down those dates of the boundaries between the different periods of the geologic timescale. So there is, I would still say, some pushback to the idea of the timescale itself, which is interesting. And um, we try to, as scientists, to help people understand the great age of the earth, but sometimes um, people have been raised in other traditions and that can be a challenge for them. So that comes up occasionally in my teaching, and I would say to my students, I always try to listen to what they have to say and then show them the scientific evidence and tell them the story of the earth and, and through the class. So geologic time is, everything else is wrapped around it. That's why it's the first major principle in the book. So after the history of the different geologists, I go on to the principles and starting with that and going into the details and some of the controversies around the divisions of the time scale and all. But, and it gets, I I had to go back and luckily I could read a bit of Latin and some French, but I had to go back to original sources to like suss out um, some of these, you know, articles that held like Cuvier. So some of the French paleontologists and even some Latin with steno, Um, so it is such a vital principle and everything else hangs on it in geology. So again, telling the story of how we figured it out and what it means. And in terms of, um, like now our present state on the earth, it is, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a big question and we can talk about that as we go.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I really hope to. Um, but before we do that, you, you, you talked about the the first principle. Um, and then the second principle you bring up is plate tectonics and, and you, you, uh, you donate, um, two chapters to that as well, five and six. Um, would you like to, to speak just a little bit about the importance of, of plate tectonics and.
1: Sure. I would love to, um, plate (laughs) tectonics is, when I was in school, so I'll, I'll age date myself a bit, um, plate tectonics was not even taught because it's a very recent theory. And we call it a theory, um, not because we're uncertain of it, but because it's it's still scientifically considered a theory. Um, and it's a very high level of proof, but still we're talking about science and it is, so as we call it, the theory of plate tectonics or sometimes just plate tectonics. But it is a unifying theory. So um, really what spurred the development of the theory of plate tectonics was World War II and um, the sensing and radar imaging they could do at the ocean floor, because before that, uh, scientists and people thought the ocean floor was just a flat abyssal plane and nothing was happening down there. And it was boring and uniform and um, little knowledge was known about it um, before remote sensing the be- ability to see beyond our eyes. And um, <clears throat> so it, the equipment and sonar and radar from World War II started to allow us to see um a bit of the mechanism of plate tectonics. But before that, even in the early 1900s, um, people noticed as they started to explore the earth and before the 1900s even, um, how the continents might've, they seemed to mirror each other like puzzle pieces almost. And people wondered about this. And um, Alfred Wagner was an early proponent of uh, continental drift. So he was not a geologist and as you've probably read he was he was um his theories of the drifting continents were widely criticized because he was not among those in the field who knew each other you know he was just different but it turned out to be true and World War II allowed us to see like how this could occur with the discovery of the mid-ocean ridges and um, the plate boundaries that we could actually see with remote sensing under the ocean floor. Um, So the continents are totally and always in motion, different rates in different places. And what it has led to is, if you think of all the earthquakes in the world and volcanoes and economic deposits and ore bodies, it's all tied together with how the plates have moved over geologic time um, because of the stresses produced at the different plate boundaries. So um, before plate tectonics, we really had no idea why earthquakes occurred where they did or why mountains rose up in certain places. There were theories, but um, nothing really made a lot of sense. So it it it's a unifying grand theory and... It's been pro now we can measure plate movement with uh, global positioning satellite GPS tracking and actually see the vectors produced over time and it's it's changed everything in geology so
2: and and it's really interesting to see how technology plays a role in our in this Western understanding of all of this of, of this whole narrative. Um, especially after after the 19th century um and in your third principle it, it seems like dna was kind of this last step of really understanding um biodiversity and and ecosystems and extinction and and you say that um evolution is the is the third principle so so why is evolution the third principle um and and why is that important
1: well evolutionary changes we can see the fossil record. So the record of former life on the planet is what we call a fossil record. And it is an incomplete record, but we have enough evidence to show changes in life forms and species over the huge span of the Earth's biography. And um, until Darwin came along and, and his colleagues, it was really unclear there were other theories, um, even theories of the flood and some early geologists held to that like Buckland. Um, but over time and with more evidence, evolution, um, is another overarching theory that helps us understand how these changes could have occurred. And it's really interesting because, um, if you see uh, still even today you'll see a lot of you go to a museum and you might see how say the horse um, ancestors and species changed over the length of the Cenozoic, the most recent um, part of the earth's history, and it's shown in a very straight line like one animal one horse ancestor evolving to the next one and it's it's really not like that it's much more complex. It has, it's more like a branching vine than a straight line. And that's, that is a misconception that sometimes creeps into some museum displays. Um, but evolution is sort of that linchpin that relates life to the geologic record and how it changed over that great time. So it's, to me, those are the three major principles in geology and everything else flows from them.
2: Yeah, that's that's so beautiful. And and something you said earlier really really caught my imagination of of seeing beyond our eyes. And um the the next part of the book when, when after after your chapter on on evolution is um is five different chapters um 8 through 11 on the um uh elaborating on the geological errors and and you call this the the biography of the earth and and before we really get into into that part one thing that i have a question of and and one thing i've struggled with as is just kind of trying to learn about about geog geology throughout throughout the years is you're you're talking in this section about like year, uh, years of millions of years. So, so each, each of these eons or, um, eras take place over, over millions of years. And I have a really hard time wrapping my head around that concept of that stretch of like deep time. Um, do you have any advice about how, or or how do you like to approach imagining, the the conception of of what a million years actually means
1: i think that's a wonderful question aspen and uh, one way to do that is to you can think of um your own body it's like starting with your breastbone and going out to your fingertips on your arm um, if you start at your breastbone and work out um, like 88% of the geolog- ge- geologic record would go out to your wrist and that would be the, um, the whole pre-Cambrian era before life really burgeoned out. So we, if we can relate it to something we know, another way you could like walk a trail of time, they have that at the Grand Canyon. But it, going back to our arm analogy and you stretch out, you say your right or left arm and that Time from the birth of the Earth to the rise of the of life, as we in the Cambrian period, um, that stretches all the way from your your breastbone to your wrist. So, eighty eight percent of the geologic record is um, is in is sort of in that pre Cambrian time, where it's just lots of things happen, but we don't have a lot of we have some knowledge but not a lot. And then going from your wrist out to your fingertips are the is what we call the phanerozoic. And that's this visible life, um, eon. And it's so a lot of things happen. And it kind of you get from your arm to your hand, you have a lot more flexibility and, and fingers and lots of things are occurring where life is developing. So This is one analogy that might be helpful to students and maybe to you too. And then just understanding, it takes time to understand geologic time. And it's something we as professors and instructors struggle with too. Like how do we we teach it? In my doctoral study, some of my participants who are seasoned professors still struggle with the depth of geologic time. So I think um, just dipping your toe in it time and again, so to speak, and um, coming back to the stories is is very helpful because a million years in that time scale of the Earth is a blink of an eye.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it's so mind blowing, and and I I was was so interested in in thinking about. how you write this book because uh, my thesis covers you know the 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 40 years between 1880 and 1920 and I'm having a hard time explaining explaining Mm -hmm. that and you're you're covering these law these these gigantic swaths of time and and when you were writing the book did you did you run into challenges with how you were going to address such a big amount of time in such a small amount of space
1: um i the it's so interesting the book just sort of flowed out of me i i don't i started in 2016 to write and um i don't know if just all the years of doing geology and being a geologist and instructor helped but um you know as we go further back in the time scale we have as i said less evidence so um i I delved a little bit into the birth of the earth and it's pretty, there's a lot of good theories, whether it was, you know, hot early earth or not as hot. Um, we're learning more all the time from physics and astronomy too. Um, but I think um, Stephen Hawking's book helped me a bunch was a brief history of time. I've read that several times and having kind of a perspective, even outside of the earth, looking at the universe and the physics, I think in my, maybe an alternate life, I would have loved to have been a theoretical physicist. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So it kind of puts it in uh, perspective to me that the universe is 13 billion years old. And then, you know, you have all the accretionary discs and the forming of the stars. And I do teach that. I touch on that in my classes because it's part of our curriculum. Um so I think organizing the book was um I guess I came to it from that viewpoint of even a broader viewpoint.
2: Cool. Cool. And I <laughs> I, I I really think that the, it reads really well and, and that flow is there. So, um, oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, you, obviously you're just, you're an expert in the field and you know ex- exactly what you're talking about and how, how it needs to be, be addressed. Um, this, the these ideas of geologic time and deep time, and then using, using some examples. Um, and I mean, I don't think we can touch on all of the examples of of kind of the geologic features that that you touch on through throughout these chapters, but um I, one that was really interesting for me was um very early on um the two thousand five hundred million years ago the the Cheyenne belt formed and and you, and you started, you, you talked about that. Would you like to talk about, you know, maybe the Cheyenne belt and uh, a few other features that, that really demonstrate the, the song of the earth and, and um, why you decided to choose those particular examples, like throughout, throughout your book.
1: Oh, sure. I'd love to delve into that a bit. Um, So Yes. Back in the pre-Cambrian, so any time before the um, 600 or so million years ago, um, the in the depths of the geologic time um, is this event. So with the continents, they were microcontinents to start um, as the layers started to develop and the Earth started to cool, and um, there still were tectonics. It did change um, quite a bit from the earliest Earth to when plate tectonics got underway in the the sense that we know it today. But this event um, that resulted in what we call the Cheyenne Belt is um, remarkable. And just to define, so the Cheyenne Belt is a zone that runs northeast, southwest um, from pretty much, about the state line of Colorado and Wyoming a little bit down into Colorado and then toward Cheyenne Wyoming hence the name and it's this it's called a shear zone which is where um, actually two pieces there was an outlier of so you have an island arc of islands and then a proto continent and they smashed together and it created this zone of the most stunning <laughs> rocks I have ever seen in my life. And just as an aside, we went up to the snowy range about when I was writing the book and um, drove up through Laramie and then up to the snowies through Centennial, Wyoming and going up over. It's a pass, a mountain pass that's closed in the winter and it was open. I think it was spring. And um, my husband was driving and we went up and up, and there's a ski area you go by and kept going up, and at the top of the pass, I just said to my husband, "Stop the car you like something crazy and amazing happened here. you know, I have to get out and look and um honestly, the rocks were just standing practically vertically um I don't know if you've been there but you have to go if you haven't. And they were shining in the sun, these white quartzites, which is like a sandstone that's been heated and pressurized, so it's a metamorphic rock. Um, And they're just gleaming in the sun, creating these amazing mountains. And I just had to find out what had happened. So I got a geologic map, which are beautiful by the way, And I started researching what the heck happened in the snowies to yield this most incredible um, scenery. And what happened in between as the two pieces of continents or the outlying um, island arc smashed into the proto-continent and then sheared, meaning it kind of went sideways, um, what was caught in between were these sands and then the earliest forms of life, which were the blue-green algae, that created these, uh, what we call stromatolites, these mounds, algal mounds. And there's still some today on the earth in um, Australia and the Bahamas, but they were captured in between and not totally destroyed. And even the clays, so they it went from sands to these carbonate rocks where the stromatolites that they created, and then the clays all trapped, all made into, so the original rock, was um, sandstone. And then we had the carbonate made from the stromatolites, which is calcium carbonate, and then deep water, deeper water clays. And um, they were captured in between and heated and pressurized, made into metamorphic rocks, but not destroyed. And you can still see some of the biggest stromatolite deposits that I know of. Um, and some are 15 meters across. And they're the earliest life forms on the planet. Well, there's, there's ancient bacteria, but these stromatolites are remarkable because they helped in the evolution of our atmosphere and the oceans to make our oxygen-rich atmosphere because they were photosynthesizing. And it's all in your backyard. <laughs> and if you haven't been there, I strongly urge you to go.
3: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: I don't know if I've been to that particular spot or if I saw. It. I did. I didn't have the specific eyes to be able to understand all of the all of the power there. But there there was a little bit of a geological like nepotism there, um, just because I you know I I do really like that area. But one thing that I've always I've always felt that there's this really old power there or, or, you know, some kind of, I mean, it just, it it is, it is awe inspiring, um, to, to just get up into those mountains and, and, and be curious about how did these come around and, and when and, and all of that. So thank you very much for that, that lovely, lovely description. Um, and and you really you, you you moved us into into the the younger part of the earth now, um, with talking about er- early life and and getting into into life where where you say it's kind of the the last twelve percent of the story. I think unless I have that wrong a little bit, but um,
1: no, you're right on.
2: Okay, perfect, perfect. And and um, one one phrase that really popped out in in one of the chapters, I think it was from Stephen Gould, um, about the weird wonders of of life that that came about, especially you know in these early parts of, of the time. Do you wanna do you wanna talk about kind of these these early life forms and and how sure. um, evolution kind of we can we can understand evolution from from this this time period.
1: Well, the, um, some of the earliest life forms emerged before the Cambrian period, and they were in the form of small shelly fossils. And life developed in the oceans first and um, emerged later, but it, it became more and more complex. And some of the, some of the early work was done um, in what we call the Burgess Shale and that was a formation in Canada and um, or is a formation in Canada. So this is a shale deposit. And um, I think the workers, there was some kind of mine and they found these what they called fossil bugs. So they did have uh, geologists come examine the rocks. And this is in um, I think Mount Stephen in Canada and the western part of Canada. and um, they they were found to be this amazing um set of fossil fossils that live together at the same time, even including what we call little trilobites. They these are kind of segmented arthropod type creatures, and picaea, which are a predatory creature. And they were captured in a they think there was an underwater landslide that captured all of these fauna together and um, allowed scientists to start to study like who lived together and when we can age date those rocks which have been done so we know um how old they are through um isotope dating and um so just just knowing sort of the ancient environments and then looking at tracing through time, how the life forms change is, is what we're talking about with evolution. So that would be kind of the one I would point to.
2: Cool. And the other really startling thing, looking f- back and, and, and moving um, throughout all of these different time periods is is the idea of um extinction along with this evolution where you talk about how only 0.1 percent of life that exists exists today and it's just like a lot of the the time existed without us there's a lot of there's this huge scope of time that um where where life both lived and died and continued to change and that's just so fascinating to me. And, and, um, and it's, it's so, I mean, it's, it's, it's mind blowing. I, d- I don't know if you'd like to talk about, you know, is there like one extinction that you think is, is really, really prominent um, or important to note?
1: Well, I think we all kind of think of the the end of the dinosaurs that extinction but the largest extinction was the one at the end of the permian that closed the paleozoic times and um, like almost 95 percent of life was wiped out at that time and they call it the great dying so it was a time when the last supercontinent started to split apart pangea and I would say it was a violent birth of the um, smaller continents. So Pangea was this huge supercontinent. And we can still see, even, even here in Colorado and Wyoming, you can see these um, had massive sand dunes in the middle of it. Um, it. Some of it was along the equator, so there were tropical coal deposits and swamps and but like uh, the sandstones are preserved, the dune deposits, the structures are preserved um, that we can still see today. But as it started to split apart, it rifted through plate tectonics. And um, it was just a violent process where um, as it rifted, more volcanics flowed out of those rift zones, and it set on fire, um, old coal deposits, and it started um, creating ash and soot in the atmosphere and basically a time of global cooling. So the the food chain collapsed in the oceans and, and on land, and um, some species made it through but it was uh, a difficult time for life, for sure. But it led to, when you have these extinction events, um, what happens is then there's a recovery period, and life soldiers on, in a sense, and the new niches and ecological niches are opened up for different species. So this led to the age of the dinosaurs, and all those many varieties of of the dinosaurs that we know and loved as kids and even today
2: that's that's poetic in itself in in a in a strange way and i i I love how in that example we we can see all of all of the the principles in there from the plate tectonics to understanding ecosystem and how how these these changes ge- geological changes impact the ecosystem which impact the way that that life will interact with with its environment and one i mean one astounding thing um about about it, the this extinction you i think you call the third grade extinction it took place over two hundred thousand years which as you know is is a is a flash in the pan um geologically speaking but um to kind of rip us back into into our our present era um i it's so fascinating all of the and and terrifying about could c- to consider all of the changes we have experienced in the last 500 to 200 to even the last few few centuries and i i don't know if you want to if you want to speak on on that um side of things in in terms of looking at our contemporary the contemporary issue of climate change um contextualized within within this greater within this greater narrative of of the earth
1: well that that's a great lead into the last chapter and sort of wrapping it all we're up into the implications for our current world and the planet and what we're facing Um, so I do think geology can provide sort of a a different understanding of climate and change. And um, we're facing events that are occurring much more swiftly than we've ever seen in the geologic record that a lot of these extinctions um, happened over, as you said, hundreds of thousands of years, except perhaps the, the dinosaur extinction was relatively rapid and we're seeing more evidence all the time that there was just a Nova series out on the day the dinosaurs died. And, um, it was very dramatic and much more, um, punctuated than some of the other extinction events, but humans are, we are a geologic force. And, um, I like to say, um, we influence the earth and the earth influences us as human beings. And the thing with climate is, yes, we've seen hothouse times in the past. And like the Paleocene, Eocene, they call it the PETM, the Paleocene Eocene Thermal Maximum. So in the beginning of the Cenozoic era was very warm and hot, lots of um, tropical forests and... Grasslands had not emerged yet, so um, as it cooled, you know, we ended up cooling through the whole Cenozoic into the Ice Ages, and there's been that kind of flow and ebb of um, warming and cooling. But there have been other times, and this is the kind of almost warning from the geologic record, that things can shift rather dramatically. So barring asteroids, things on the planet can shift. And even going back to the Precambrian times, um, we had times of um, snow house or ice ice ball earth where things were frozen and then they would suddenly shift. So we have to be careful that there are tipping points, which is a concept from Uh, economics. But still, you know, you weigh the scales to a point where suddenly things can change rather dramatically. The earth is such a big system. And if we think about the um, multiple industrial revolutions, which it sounds like some of your work has covered, um, like how we've been adding carbon to the air, air, pardon me, through the burning of fossil fuels. And now we're seeing the impacts of um, a warming climate through increased greenhouse gases. And people, I think, don't understand that we need these greenhouse gases to survive. It provides that warm blanket around the earth for life. But if we have tampered with the system so much that now it can't regulate itself, um, it's, it's truly a concerning time and we're seeing more rapid changes i of course i follow the un ipcc you know reports and they're saying we have 3 years now to get this um, under control which i i i am a hopeful person but i i have great concern
2: yeah, I I echo the uh, those those um thoughts as well. And one thing that I I've I'm really interested in in considering time is also like so I, my one of the first classes in my um in my grad program that I took was called the, the letters of science and it was a creative writing class and we read um we read Stephen Gould's times arrow time cycle. And it, it got me thinking about these different the different ways that we perceive time. And then I, I've been I've been considering a lot about how there are the implications about things like microplastic or, or the radiation that we've introduced through either atomic bombs or, or nuclear um, power. um, And and the, the, the linear implications of those within the framework of of geology and then even thinking about kind of industrial or urban scapes and how those like is there a way that we can think of all of these things as, as part of geography or geology even if they seem very artificial from past experiences of the earth
1: i think so i think it's all interrelated and can be related to geology but that is my lens um but yes i i think an interesting story with the nuclear waste and even nuclear bug testing and the fallout is that um you know those those particles those radioactive particles have been captured in in lake sediments and they're actually being considered as a time marker for the newest geologic period, the, um, the Anthropocene. So um, it would be very concerning because we've ended the Holocene. If I mean, we're pretty much sure we've ended the Holocene. It's just that stratigraphers are trying to find that marker bed that is, it has to be permanent, you know, to be documented. They actually, use a golden spike to mark it, and they have to age date it, which they could do. But um, your point to urban cities, and there is a whole field of urban geology, which um, is, it, it was really um, started in, I believe Canada in the seventies and eighties, but it's becoming more important as we find greater than 50% of Po- the population in the US lives in cities, and most of these cities are on coastlines, uh, so the east or west coasts. So they are going to be impacted by many geologic factors, um, even without talking about climate change. Think of California and, and the earthquakes and the population that, you know, the population is living in an active on an active tectonic boundary where the pacific plate is diving down under the north american plate creating a big trench and the earthquakes are caused by all those tectonic processes but when you introduce climate as well and the ice sheets are being subject to the warming and melting so they store a lot of fresh water and then um, that water is being added back to the oceans and actually slightly diluting the salt content. But anyway, sea level rise, especially for coastal cities and populations, is, is huge. So in that sense, we have geologic impacts. Um, and a lot of these cities are built along what we call the fall line. I don't know if you've heard that term. So where the coastal plain sediments meet the more hard rock Piedmont sediments. And it it goes back to the history of when ships came to from the explorers and settlers. um, They could navigate only so far up the river to the fall line. And that's pretty much where in the east and the Atlantic coast, a lot of the cities are placed right there where they could no no longer navigate. So that's where Philadelphia and Boston and You know, a lot of these coastal cities are placed. And as sea level rises, the incidence of daytime flooding or daylight flooding is these flooding events are occurring more and more frequently. And I think my biggest concern for these urban areas is um, well, a couple concerns. So you have um, how are they producing or getting energy and water and Food sources, because a lot of uh, food-growing areas will be threatened by climate change. All the river delta areas, where the the five huge worldwide river deltas that grow a huge amount of food for the world, could be inundated by saltwater. Um, you know, this is not in the U.S. per se, but um, it's it's a time of. I think it has to be our number one priority. I call it an all hands on deck moment, and it's why I decided to go on and and do my doctoral work and and like the book is. I loved writing the book, but I feel like I have to do even more to help because I we all have to do everything we can. I believe to. I don't know if we can avert it at this point, but maybe mitigate this climate crisis.
2: Sure. At least, uh, stay with the trouble as, uh, Donna Haraway would say. Um, but I mean, a book like, like song of the earth, I think is a really good jumping off point to, to really trying to engage with these, these topics and these conversations in a, in a, maybe a more gentle way or a more understanding way and maybe by by really allowing us to look deep into the past it will it will create some kind of it will allow for our imaginations to to run and and maybe start thinking about things in different ways and collaborating in different ways because we see how how immense everything is it might put Us and more of a platform of like, we need to work together. Um, like you said, all hands on deck and, um, yeah, but I, so it's, I, I feel like I'm, I'm leaving this interview both inspired and a little terrified, which might be a good, a good position to, to be in. Um, but, with, with that we have taken up a lot of your time um, and and before you go I'd like to to just open um, the floor up to any any last comments you have and then if if you'd like to tell us how, um, what your plans are moving forward maybe after you get this phd um oh, thank we you. would we would love to hear it
1: well I I hope that people feel inspired by my book and also that to know that geology nurtures us that it's anywhere we go, there it is. And it can be a source of great um, support in our lives. And I just see it like you can go out and Virginia, um, Virginia Dale is a little place just north of us between here and Wyoming. And (laughs) there's this amazing like volcanic structure that's 15 kilometers across and and it's it's very ancient too and just knowing it's such a special place virginia dale um, and the snowies and even even here along the front range where we had the ancient cretaceous seaway just knowing that these stunning things are out there and they're so fascinating to see is i think a way of nurturing our our soul and our you know, bodies and getting out in nature, the Japanese talk about um, sort of that nature bathing idea. I would say do geology bathing, (laughs) get out and see some rocks and take a geologist with you. Or, um... and in terms of my plans, I do hope to offer some, I have some virtual field trips that are kind of fun um, that go into some of these cool kind of geologic features. And I'm working on a second book. It's tongue-in-cheek, called "Calamities, <laughs> Disasters, and Catastrophes in the Geologic Record," and it's um, it's it's written for general public, and it focuses on. Uh, Uh, these happenings in the geologic record not to dismiss the slow and steady processes but um actually my agent is so interested in this topic that he's um so i have a draft out for um, publisher review and i haven't heard back yet but that is in my in hopefully in my future um and then uh as i finish my doctorate this hopefully as soon as possible, um, we'll see what comes up, whether I'm very interested in policy work and I think hopefully figure out the path as I go forward. Um, so I'll be applying for the American association for the advancement of science, um, probably a fellowship to do science policy, perhaps in DC, um, or, and, or, um, looking for full-time teaching positions um, or continue on at Front Range, which I love and adore. Uh, So some kind of outreach, my doctorates in scientific and geologic literacy, helping people understand, trying to kind of translate geology for the public and Um, I'm learning all the time. I'm so grateful for the journey. And thank you so much, Aspen, for your time and and your great questions. And I I just hope you have a chance to get out and see some geology in, in the field, so to speak.
2: It has been my pleasure, and and thank you for coming on. And I'm I'm excited for for your new publications, and and I'm excited for when the the next generation of geologists come through, they're going to be writing about you in their books as this uh, next next chapter, I I think. Um. So um. Thank you so much for for coming on and um and your time today, and and I hope you have a, a wonderful day and, and good luck with all of your endeavors.
1: Thank you.